Hello, and welcome to the reading of the Dubuque Telegraph Herald for Thursday, March 2nd, 2023. I'm your reader, Catherine Moyers. The headline from today's paper is Education Bills in Iowa Receiving Mixed Grades by Benjamin Miller. Dateline Des Moines. Republicans in the Iowa legislature advanced bills Wednesday that would restrict LGBTQ plus student restroom access and gender identity instruction and make it easier for books to be removed from school libraries, all over opposition from Democrats. The Senate Education Committee advanced a broad bill that would ban gender identity and sexual development from health education for younger students allow materials deemed unsuitable by some parents to be removed from schools statewide, and require schools to receive parental approval before referring to transgender students by their identified gender, among other measures. The Senate committee also advanced a bill that would require students and school staff to use restrooms associated with the sex assigned to them at birth. Proponents of the bills said they would protect parental choice and privacy in schools. Iowa Senator Chris Cornoyer, Republican of LeClaire, whose district includes Maquoketa, serves on the Senate Education Committee and agreed with the parental choice arguments. Parents want and deserve to be more involved in their children's education, which I think is what we're doing here, she said. The larger bill that includes many socially conservative education priorities was amended in committee to expand grades at which gender identity and sexuality lessons are banned from health education to span from kindergarten through fifth or sixth grade, depending on whether an elementary includes sixth grade. The amendment also specifies a process for school library materials to be removed due to them being sexually explicit or obscene. It additionally would require schools to notify parents if a student identifies as a gender or name other than the one assigned at their birth, unless school officials believe the notification could lead to a child being abused by the parents. The amended bill would require regular review of library materials for both public and private schools to search for any sexually explicit or obscene materials which it defines as materials not age-appropriate for the youngest student who can access it. The bill also would require that a material deemed inappropriate in one district be considered for removal in all districts by a review board. The bill would allow one written warning for school officials judged to have violated any of its rules before that official is subjected to state disciplinary hearing. Iowa Senator Pam Yoakum, Democrat of Dubuque, does not serve on the Senate Education Committee, but had been following the bill, which she said disappointed her deeply. We just crossed a line to where we have just become cruel and mean, she said, of legislative moves she believes will harm LGBTQ plus students. They're children, and they should be respected. Democrats opposing the bill in the Senate Education Committee meeting said that, counter to supporters' claims that the bill would increase parental choice in available library materials, it instead eliminated parental choice for many parents and instead catered to the wishes of small groups of extremist 
parents, calling for books to be removed from schools. If a small group of parents in a district, no matter how small, can pressure a school board to have a library book removed, that imposes a burden on every other school district, said the Senate Education Committee's ranking Democrat, Senator Herman Quirmbach of Ames. The 500 get to dictate to the 500,000, including parents who want their kids to have access to a broader stretch of material, who believe their kids benefit from being exposed to new ideas. Parents in the tiniest of districts get to dictate to parents across the state. Opponents also said the problems in health education that supporters say the bill target do not actually exist, as teachers already are required to teach age-appropriate lessons and not share obscene materials. They also said the bill wrested local control from school boards. Cornoyer, a former school board member, said she defends local control, but the bill responded to problems that parents only became aware of when the COVID-19 pandemic gave them new access to materials in schools. A subcommittee of the House of Representatives Education Committee also advanced a companion bill in that chamber along party lines with the two Republicans voting in favor. The Senate Education Committee also amended the bill banning transgender people from school bathrooms and changing areas that don't correspond to their sex assigned at birth to include what sponsor Iowa Senator Ken Rosenboom, Republican of Oskaloosa, called accommodations for transgender students. The changes would allow a student wishing to use rooms associated with their identified gender to do so at a parent or guardian's request. If the restrooms were single occupancy or unisex or for faculty and staff. Iowa Senator Claire Kelsey, Democrat of West Des Moines, said the bathroom bill was horrific, dangerous, and created on misunderstandings and outright mischaracterizations. The Senate Education Committee advanced both bills along party lines with Republicans for it and Democrats against it. The next story is proposed USDA nutrition standards could limit choices for school meals by Elizabeth Kelsey. Area school officials are concerned about the impacts of proposed updates to nutrition standards for school meals that would further restrict sodium levels and potentially eliminate flavored milks for younger students. U.S. Department of Agriculture officials recently shared proposed updates to school meal standards related to added sugars, milk, sodium, and whole grains. The first changes would take effect in the fall of 2024, and the final updates would be complete by the fall of 2029. Local school officials said that while it is important to ensure children receive healthy options, they fear the increased regulations will make meals less appealing for students and that schools and suppliers will struggle to find products that meet the stricter guidelines. Some of these new standards are pretty difficult to meet with everything that's available to us now, said Western Dubuque Community School District Director of Food and Nutrition Services, Kyle Ganson. It's really going to fall on a lot of our suppliers to come up with products that are going to be able to meet these needs. And my biggest fear is that these suppliers are just going to exit the K-12 through 
business. The new rules propose gradually reducing the weekly sodium limit for school breakfasts and lunches over several school years and limiting added sugars in certain products such as breakfast cereals, flavored milks, grain-based desserts, and yogurt beginning in the fall of 2025. In the fall of 2027, added sugars across the weekly menu would be limited to less than 10% of calories per meal on average. There is currently no limit on added sugars in school meals. The proposed changes also would no longer allow schools to offer flavored milks to elementary and middle school students, though USDA officials also seek public feedback for a proposal that would maintain the current standard allowing fat-free or low-fat flavored and unflavored milk for all students. Current regulations require at least 80% of the grains offered each week in school lunch and breakfast programs to be whole grain rich. USDA officials propose maintaining that requirement but also seek feedback on an alternative option that would require all grains to be whole grain rich on all but one day in each school week. The USDA's website states that the proposed changes will help school meals better align with the federal dietary guidelines for Americans. For example, the guidelines note that 70 to 80 percent of school-aged children currently exceed the recommended daily limit for sugar, and an analysis of USDA data found that flavored milk is the leading source of added sugars in school lunch and breakfast programs. USDA officials also state that children's taste preferences develop early, so limiting sodium and added sugars during childhood is important for lifelong health. Still, local officials expressed particular concern about the proposed elimination of flavored milks for younger students. At Holy Family Catholic Schools in Dubuque, the system sells about 200 chocolate milks daily at each of its elementary schools, compared to about 20 white milks, according to Director of Nutrition Services, Kristen Smith. Butte Community Schools Food and Nutrition Manager Joanne, Joanne Frank said she feels that nutritional value of milk outweighs the small amount of sugar found in chocolate milk. Milk is a highly nutrient-dense food product, so I'm hoping we can find a solution for that because it is a popular item for our schools at lunch, she said. It doesn't become nutrition until students take it and drink it. Decora Freed, Food Service Director for Platteville, Wisconsin School District, said the district currently follows stricter guidelines for the sugar content of cereals for pre-kindergarten students than for older students, and finding products that meet those limits already is challenging. Smith said she supports a limit on added sugar in school meals, but current restrictions on sodium already lead to complaints from students about the taste of school meals. Products such as cheese, a common protein substitute for vegetarians, and condiments such as ketchup or ranch dressing dressing, contain a decent amount of sodium and it can be difficult to find low-salt varieties, she said. It makes it really hard for school lunch programs when our food can't taste as good as what kids are used to from home, and some people are genuinely worried that it will kill the school lunch program in the long term because the lunches won't be appealing to kids any longer, she said.
Freed agreed, saying she feels school meals already offer a good balance of healthy options for students and that the new requirements are not necessary. There are definitely days that there can be higher sodium content, but I still think it's within very good limits. For the most part, keeping nutrition and taste as factors, she said. Jansen said meeting the enhanced requirements, if they are approved, also likely will increase costs for schools. For example, with more stringent sodium limits, he anticipates schools will need to offer more fresh vegetables rather than canned products, which contain more sodium but are also less expensive. Fresh green beans cost me three times what it would cost to serve canned green beans, he said. But if they elect to move forward, we'll just have to adjust. The last story from the front page is titled, Forecasters, Snowpack Boosts Areas Flood Risk, by Eric Hogstrom. Recent heavy snowfall north of the Dubuque area could spell the return of spring flooding along the Mississippi River. The National Weather Service recently issued its second spring flood outlook with the key message that the river faces a well-above-normal spring flood risk. The first spring flood outlook was released February 9th, and it was pretty benign, said Matt Wilson, senior service hydrologist with the Weather Service office in the Quad Cities. Then, for the next two weeks, there was a 200% to 400% increase in precipitation in the upper Midwest, mostly falling as snow. Wilson said areas of Minnesota and northern Wisconsin went from having snowpacks with 2 to 4 inches of water equivalent to broad areas with 4 to 6 inches of snowpack. There were also pockets of the region with 6 or more inches of water in their snowpacks, Wilson said. That really increased the flood potential. The outlook for the Dubuque area notes that additional storms and the rate of melting snow in the upper Mississippi River Basin will help determine the severity of flooding this spring. The risk of mild to moderate floods on the river is in the 90 percentile, so you can kind of count on that, Wilson said. The outlook states that although the overall risk of flooding is above the 30-year average, there is no guarantee that flooding will occur. Local officials have taken notice of the outlook as spring approaches. There's a lot of snowpack up there in Minnesota and northern Wisconsin, said Tom Berger, Dubuque County's Emergency Management Director. We've got to be careful and pay attention to what's happening up north so we can respond down here if we have to. Steve Braun, Grant County, Wisconsin Emergency Management Director, said some localities have worked to mitigate flood risk along the Mississippi. One of the advantages we have is that over the past 20 years, we have taken advantage of some federal programs and purchased and demolished homes in the Mississippi River floodplain that were most susceptible to flooding, he said. Problems still can occur in riverside communities that must close stormwater outlets when river levels rise. When those are closed, we have a higher risk of flash flooding in those communities, Braun said. Flooding can pose a particular problem in areas of East Dubuque, Illinois. Where we usually have our issues is outside the dike in the flats area, said East Dubuque Fire Chief Joe Heim. It can get where we can no longer access certain areas if the water gets high enough that it covers the road. Heim noted that one of the worst instances of high water occurred 22 years ago.
The Mississippi River rose to 25.4 feet on April 21, 2001, the second highest crest in the area's recorded history. To reach certain areas, we would have to put out our boat in the water, Heim said. We haven't had anything like that since then. The Dubuque area hasn't faced significant Mississippi River flooding since 2019. The river rose to 23.18 feet at Dubuque's railroad bridge on April 27, 2019, the fourth highest crest in Dubuque's history. The flood stage is 17 feet at the railroad bridge. The river topped 20 feet at the bridge three times in 2019. The good takeaway from the recent outlook is to be prepared to expect some floods, but they are not likely to reach the catastrophic levels of 2019, at least at this point, Wilson said. Any floods will mark a change from recent years along the Mississippi when the river levels were low. Last year, we were in the second year of a drought around here, Wilson said. At the start of this winter, we were still in drought, but the soils have been getting a whole lot more moist, and by the end of this winter, most of this area of Iowa should be almost completely out of drought. The Iowa National Weather Service offices are scheduled to release their third flooding outlook of the year on March 9th. Turning to the Dubuque and Tri-State page, the story at the top is Dubuque School District officials discuss computers for all elementary students by Elizabeth Kelsey. Dubuque Community School officials are exploring the steps needed to implement a one-to-one technology program for the district's elementary schools. District leaders discuss the potential for an augmented one-to-one elementary program with school board members this week at a strategic plan update session, during which officials shared progress that the district has made on its priority initiatives for the 2022-23 school year. The district's middle and high schools currently have a one-to-one program in which all students are issued a computer or similar technological device and can take it home each night. Superintendent Amy Hawkins said staff are exploring what the district would need to do to bring a similar program to the elementary level, though elementary students would not typically take home the devices on a daily basis. The district is really exploring what that capacity looks like, and if that is something we could implement grade level by grade level, starting with our fifth graders and working down the grades as funding becomes available, she said. Regardless of our philosophy around one-to-one, funding becomes a big piece of that and how you can sustain that moving forward. Ahead of the 2020-2021 school year, district officials purchased about 1,900 laptops and tablets to be distributed to elementary students as part of the district's hybrid and virtual education offerings that year due to the COVID-19 pandemic. The purchase meant every student could have a device if school buildings were to close. However, Chief Technology Officer Kobe Culbertson said that as pandemic regulations waned, the district did not continue to sustain that level of technology for elementary students. Many of the devices that were purchased were redistributed to fill other technological needs around the district. He said officials do not know how many devices would need to be purchased or what the cost of that purchase would be to bring the district's elementary schools back to a one-to-one situation. 
We have to look at the resources we have internally and see what we would need to purchase, he said. Hawkins said the district also is considering logistical issues such as storage, charging, and maintenance of equipment. School board member Jim Prochaska noted that state legislators are considering changes to Iowa's current rule that prohibits remote learning hours from counting towards the annual minimum instructional hours required by state law. He said if that law were to change to allow Iowa districts to use remote learning instead of canceling school during adverse weather, the district would be wise to take steps and acquire the necessary technology for such a move. Obviously, there's some financial constraints to that, and it appears we're far from a one-to-one situation at the elementary schools now, he said. But it seems like it's a bit of a trend to be able to allow some type of learning during bad weather. The next story is titled, Dubuque Students Participate in Walkout to Protest Iowa Education Bills by Elizabeth Kelsey. Dozens of Dubuque students joined their peers across Iowa in staging a walkout to protest state legislation they say would discriminate against LGBTQ plus individuals. A group of 14 Dubuque senior high school students peacefully assembled in a common area in front of the school's main office during a morning support time period, according to an organizer who is a junior at senior. A group of Wallard Catholic High School students organized a similar walkout and sent a message to local legislators in support of LGBTQ plus individuals. A photo of the walkout at Wallard shows at least 50 students participating. High school and college students statewide held walkouts throughout the day Wednesday to protest bills that would impact LGBTQ plus students in Iowa. The Senate Education Committee on Wednesday advanced a bill that would ban gender identity and sexual development from health education for elementary school students and require schools to receive parental approval before referring to transgender students by their identified gender, among other measures. A subcommittee of the House Education Committee also has advanced a companion bill. The bills are backed by Republicans in the legislature, who say the bills aim to protect parental choice and privacy in schools. The statewide protests were organized by Iowa WTF, a a coalition of young people that fights discriminatory legislation, according to the group's social media accounts and Iowa Queer Student Alliance. There have been children, psychiatrists, doctors, parents, teachers who have been talking directly to lawmakers about how these bills are harming students and will cause things like bullying, depression, anxiety. Iowa WTF and Iowa QSA member Gemma Bullock told the Des Moines Register. They just will not listen, the high school senior added. The senior student expressed particular concerns about legislation that would prohibit school districts from providing accommodations intended to affirm a student's change in gender identity, such as using their preferred name and pronouns without parental consent. At Senior, most of the students involved in the walkout notified their teachers beforehand that they would be participating, the student said. During the approximately 40-minute period, senior students held signs and LGBTQ plus pride flags. 
Afterwards, as other students were walking to their next classes, the group stood against a nearby wall and chanted, Queer rights are human rights. Turning to the News in Brief column, Dubuque Bridge Project pushed back over traffic concerns. The replacement of a Dubuque Bridge has been delayed until next year due to concerns over handling the ensuing traffic impacts. The planned $1.9 million replacement of the bridge on South Grandview Avenue that passes over U.S. Highway 61-151, originally scheduled to start in April, now will be undertaken in 2024, according to Iowa Department of Transportation resident construction engineer Hugh Holak. He said the department had some staging concerns with the project and needs time to do some redesign and research related to handling traffic. By the time that redesign is done, there will not be enough time in the 2023 construction season to finish the bridge. Holuck said the Grandview Bridge is functionally obsolete and needs to be replaced, but that there are no immediate safety concerns with pushing the project to next year. Once underway, the project will cause some traffic disruptions because it will require the closure of that stretch of South Grandview, meaning that residents living east of the highway who use South Grandview will have to be detoured. Platteville officials announced completion of armory sale. Dateline, Platteville, Wisconsin. The city of Platteville announced the completion of the sale of the former National Guard armory. The sale was completed Tuesday, according to an outline announcement. The Wisconsin Department of Military Affairs sold the building to the city of Platteville, which in turn sold the building to RFK Armory, LLC. Platteville Common Council members in January agreed to sell the building located at 475 North Water Street to the limited liability company consisting of Chris and Allison Richard of Platteville, Josh and Holly Keppers of Dickeyville, and Jason Francois of Dubuque, for $2,100. The agreement following the city soliciting proposals regarding the sale of the property. The group members purchasing the building said that in their submission that they hope to make the Armory a community-based building that serves multiple needs for the citizens of the city of Platteville and the surrounding area. Planned uses for the space include leased storage space for area businesses, event and kitchen space rentals, and potential use as a child care facility for the Head Start program. Top 10, Telegraph Herald's Most Read Stories of February. A story about a new restaurant in Dubuque's Millwork District was the most read article on the Telegraph Herald website in February. The 10 most read stories on telegraphherald.com for the month were 1. Restaurateur's newest venture opening in Dubuque Millwork District. Two, one dead after overnight shooting in Dubuque. Three, police ID man found dead when firefighters respond to Dubuque blaze. Four, Dubuque residents badly damaged by fire. Five, former Dubuque banking executives starting new bank with local headquarters. Six, Home goods coming to Dubuque, prompting movement at mall. 7. Authorities ID 1 seriously injured when two vehicles crash outside of Dubuque. 8. Winter storm updates. Traffic at a standstill on most major Dubuque roads. 9. Bizbuzz. 
Dubuque Transmission Shop closes. New owner of Platteville Fitness Studio. Bellevue Couple opens barbershop. And 10. Once-in-a-lifetime experience at Super Bowl for Dubuque Teen. And the police column. The Dubuque Police and Dubuque County Sheriff's Departments reported. D'Angelo A. Montgomery, 37, of Chicago, was arrested at 10.45 a.m. Wednesday in the 2900 block of Kerper Boulevard on a charge of second-degree burglary. Brian Hosh, 53, of Maquoketa, Iowa, was arrested at 12.05 p.m. Tuesday at Dubuque Law Enforcement Center on a warrant charging second-degree criminal mischief and fourth-degree theft. A total of $1,000 worth of criminal damage to a window was reported at about 10.25 a.m. Tuesday in the 100 block of West 15th Street. And Midwest One Bank, 4730 Asbury Road, reported a forgery case resulting in the loss of $24,279 between February 18th and Tuesday. You are listening to the reading of the Dubuque Telegraph Herald for Thursday, March 2nd, 2023 on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. Next, we'll turn to today's obituaries. Ruth Ann M. Knutson, Lancaster, Wisconsin. Ruth Ann May Reynolds Knutson, aged 87, of Lancaster, Wisconsin, passed away on Tuesday, February 28, 2023, at Park Place Assisted Living in Platteville. A massive Christian burial will be held on Saturday, March 4, 2023, at 11 a.m. at St. Clement Catholic Church, Lancaster, with Father William Vernon officiating. Burial will be in Rock Church Cemetery, Clifton Township, rural Livingston. Visitation will be held on Friday, March 3, 2023, at Martin Schwartz Funeral Home and Crematory in Lancaster from 4 p.m. until 6 p.m. and on Saturday from 10 a.m. until time of services at the church. In lieu of flowers, donations may be made to the Alzheimer's Association. Online condolences may be left at martinschwartzfuneralhomes.com. Keith Teasdale, Galena, Illinois. Keith Whitey Teasdale, 88, of Galena, Illinois, passed away Saturday, February 25, 2023, at Mercy One, Dubuque, Iowa. Funeral services will be at 11 a.m. Monday, March 6, 2023, at Furlong Funeral Chapel, Galena. Burial will be in Greenwood Cemetery, Galena. Friends may call from 1 to 4 p.m. at the Furlong Funeral Chapel on Sunday, March 5, 2023. Judith F. Meyer Judith Frances Meyer, age 72, passed away peacefully at Sunset Park Place Memory Care in Dubuque, Iowa, on February 27, 2023. In considering donations, please send to Hospice of Dubuque and the Alzheimer's Association. Her wake will be held on Saturday, March 4, 2023, from 2 to 4 p.m. with prayer service at 2 o'clock at Hoffman Schneider and Kitchen Funeral Home at 3860 Asbury Road, Dubuque. The family would also like to invite friends and guests to a luncheon and celebration of life on the last Saturday of the month, March 25th, at 2 p.m. at Catfish Charlie's at 1630 East 16th Street, Dubuque, Iowa, 52001. Hoffman Schneider and Kitchen Funeral Home and Crematory is in care of the arrangements. 
A photo tribute can be viewed and condolences can be sent to the family by visiting Judith's obituary at hskfhcares.com. Jody L. Ehrensdorf. Jody Ehrensdorf, 59, of Dubuque, passed away February 27, 2023, at home, surrounded by family. Massive Christian burial will be at 10.30 a.m. Saturday, March 4, 2023, at Church of the Resurrection, 4300 Asbury Road, Dubuque. Visitation will be from 3 to 8 p.m., where there will be a parish wake service at 7.30 p.m. Friday, March 3, 2023, at the Engelhoff, Siegert, and Casper Funeral Home and Crematory, 2659 JFK Road, Dubuque. Visitation will continue from 9.15 a.m. to 10.15 Saturday at the church. Burial will be in Mount Calvary Cemetery. A Jody Ehrensdorf Memorial Fund has been established. The Engelhoff Siegert and Casper Funeral Home and Crematory is entrusted with arrangements. Lynn I. Montgomery, Benton, Wisconsin. Lynn I. Montgomery, 83, of Benton, died on Monday, February 27, 2023. Visitation will be held from 9 to 10.45 a.m. Monday, March 6, at United Methodist Church in Benton, where services will follow at 11 a.m. Burial will take place in the church cemetery. Casey McNett Funeral Home and Cremation Services of Cuba City is assisting the family. Robert B. Steffen Robert B. Steffen, 79, of Dubuque and formerly of Bernard, Iowa, died on Monday, February 27, 2023. Visitation will be held from 2 to 6 p.m. Sunday, March 5th, at Rife Funeral Home in Piasta. Services will take place at 11 a.m. Monday, March 6th, at St. Patrick's Catholic Church in Gary Owen. Burial will be in the St. Aloysius Cemetery in South Gary Owen. Ron Tobas, Galena, Illinois. Ron Tobas, 81, of Galena, died on Monday, February 27, 2023. Services will be held in the spring. Furlong Funeral Chapel of Galena is assisting the family. Turning to the sports page, the Telegraph Herald Athlete of the Week, Perfecting Her Craft, Addie Heffel of Galena, Illinois, by Shannon Mum. It's rare to go into the Galena gym and not find Addie Heffel. The junior point guard can usually be found putting in hours upon hours on the basketball court and is there long after the Pirates games and practices are over. The Telegraph Herald Athlete of the Week became just the ninth player in program history to join the 1,000-point club when she scored 13 points in the sectional semifinal victory over Pecatonica last Tuesday. She is the third Pirate to accomplish this feat this season, joining Gracie Furlong from the girls' team and Connor Glasgow from the boys' team. It's impressive in itself to achieve 1,000 points as a junior, but to do so with only 13 games during her freshman COVID season is even more impressive, Galena coach Jamie Watson said. She is always in the gym working on her craft. She's just an impressive kid who is having a phenomenal season. Heffel has been a starter for the Pirates since her freshman season and said reaching the 1,000-point milestone has been a dream of hers since she was a little girl. I remember thinking during my sophomore season that I could actually do it as a junior, she said. I definitely was feeling the pressure to get it the last couple of games, and I'm glad I got it done so I could focus on the rest of the postseason. 
Haffel is averaging 16.3 points per game and has been an important piece of the Pirates' offense this season. She also averages 5.7 rebounds, 3.6 assists, and 3.7 steals per contest. My offensive production has increased since last year, and I think my form has been a lot more consistent, Heffel said. My shooting has improved a lot, and I just credit that to the hours spent working in the gym. Hard work really does pay off. After falling in the state final last season, Heffel said she and her teammates had all the motivation they needed to get back to state this year. We all wanted to get back there and have a second chance at the title, she said. We have been ranked number one all year, and we know we're getting everyone's best effort, but we aren't going to settle for anything less than the gold ball. The Pirates will face O'Cowville in today's state semifinals. During Monday's supersectional win, Heffel had 17 points and nine rebounds for the Pirates. I like to be good at whatever I'm doing, and I will do whatever that takes, she said. I am usually in the gym as long as the coach lets me stay, and I try to work out consistently three times a week. Basketball is definitely a passion of mine. Heffel said she has already received an offer from Clark University and has other schools showing interest in her already. I would love to continue playing basketball at the collegiate level, she said. Added Watson, to be the starting point guard in the state finals two years in a row is pretty impressive. She's earned the nickname of the shiftiest guard in 815 with moves upon moves. Her ability to create create on the offensive end is fun to watch, and it's a great feeling to know we have her back for another year yet. In girls' prep basketball, Illinois Class 1A State Tournament, Pirates Motivated for Return by Danny Miller. Entering last year's Illinois Girls State Basketball Tournament with a 31-3 record, it may be far-fetched to label Galena a Cinderella story. But the Pirates were first-timers to Redbird Arena, and their near-championship run caught many by surprise. Pirates junior Taylor Burcham knows that won't be the case this time around. There's always a target on our back, Burcham said, after Monday's supersectional victory over Chicago Hope. Since day one, teams play super hard against us because they want us to lose every time. That's been one of our biggest motivators to make it back to Redbird Arena this year. Galena has been the consensus number one team in Class 1A, ranked at the top of all eight of the Associated Press polls released this season. Burcham said, instead of feeling the pressure of staying atop the field, her team used it as a driving force to make it back to normal. I think 100% we used it as a motivation because everybody is gunning for us, and we just wanted to go back to state, and we did it, Burcham said. Galena appears in its second straight tournament today when it meets O'Callville in the Class 1A semifinals. Tip-off is scheduled for 10 a.m. at Redburn Arena in Normal, Illinois. The winner will face either Champagne St. Thomas Moore or Christopher in Saturday's championship. The semifinal losers will will meet tonight at 7 p.m. in a consolation contest. Here is a capsule look at today's matchups. Galena, overall record 34-1, Northwestern Upstate Illini Conference Champions. Final ranking, Class 1A, number one. Road to normal, regional quarterfinal. 
Warren 63-22. Regional semifinal, River Ridge Scales Mound 48-28. Sectional semifinal, Pecatonica 42-24. Sectional final, Orangeville 48-17. Super sectional, Chicago Hope Academy 53-21. State leaders, Gracie Furlong, Addie Heffel, and Taylor Bircham. State tournament history, second appearance, runner-up in 2022. O'Callville, overall record 32-4, Cahokia Conference. Champions. Final ranking, Class 1A, number 2, Road to Normal. Regional quarterfinal, Dupo, 71-14. Regional semifinal, Nokomis, 50-10. Sectional semifinal, Jacksonville Route Catholic, 69-34. Sectional final, Carlisle, 63-41, to and supersectional, Havana, 58-45. to Stat leaders, Alana Kraus, Briley Rhodes, and Madison Weinstroer. State tournament history, 8th appearance, 1994, and 2000 state champions. The outlook. There's no question that today's semifinal contest will be the most grueling matchup either side has faced in quite some time. Both teams breezed through regional and sectional play with little adversity. In its five postseason contests leading up to state tournament, Galena outscored its opponents 254 to 122, while Ocaville breezed through regionals and sectionals 311 to 144. Galena has held the top spot in the rankings all season, but Ocaville has stayed hot on its trail. The Rockets never dipped below number four in the AP rankings and saw themselves start and finish the season ranked second in 1A. Two of O'Callville's losses came to Class 2A ranked Quincy Notre Dame, which will also be competing in today's state semifinals. Another came at the hands of Alton, which finished the season ranked number three in 4A, Illinois' largest class. Galena's lone defeat of the season was to Class 2A number 3 ranked Byron, also a state semifinalist at this year's tournament. There's a strong argument to be made that the two top teams in Class 1A will be facing each other in today's first semifinal. Turning to boys prep basketball, all Mississippi Valley Conference teams, MVC honors local quartet by Danny Miller. The Mississippi Valley Conference released its boys' basketball all-division selections on Wednesday, and 17 area athletes were recognized. Three players who led their teams to the brink of a state tournament berth before bowing out in sub-state final contests landed on the Mississippi Division first team. Dubuque Wallert Sr.'s Nolan Berendez and Duke Faley nearly willed the Golden Eagles to their first state tournament since 2016 before losing an overtime heartbreaker to Cedar Rapids Xavier in a Class 3A sub-state championship. Dubuque seniors Jacob Williams was also recognized on the Mississippi first team after leading the Rams in scoring and rebounds. Senior fell one shy of reaching Des Moines, dropping a 54-51 decision to Pleasant Valley in Tuesday's 5A Substate 3 Championship. Rams 12th grader John Weil and freshman teammate Tevin Schultz were honored on the Mississippi second team along with Wallert senior Jack Walsh. Seniors Hayden Jacobsmeyer and Jalen Johnson and Wallert's Seamus Crayon and Luke Smith were Mississippi Division honorable mention selections.
Western Dubuque's Davion Gaston was the lone area athlete named to the Valley Division's first team. The Bobcat senior led the team in scoring and assists. WD's Canyon Bright and Hempstead's Reed Strohmeyer landed on the second team of the Valley Division. Valley Division honorable mention selections include Hempstead's Johnny Muring and Justin Potts and Western Dubuque's Colin McGrath and Caleb Klein. Cedar Falls and Cedar Rapids Kennedy made a clean sweep of the top player and coach awards in each division. Cedar Falls' Ryan Schultz was named Mississippi Division Coach of the Year, while Dallas Bear claimed Mississippi Athlete of the Year. Kennedy's John McCowan earned Valley Division Coach of the Year, and Colby Dolphin was selected as its top athlete. Turning to girls' prep gymnastics, the Wisconsin State Meet, the title is Area Quartet Makes State by Jim Leitner. A capsule look at this Friday's 53rd Wisconsin Division II State Gymnastics Meet in Wisconsin Rapids. Site, Lincoln High School. Schedule, the Division II Team Championships will begin at noon Friday and the individual meet takes place at 10 a.m. Saturday. Who qualified? The top two teams from each of last weekend's five sectional meets advanced to state. The top five individuals in each event and the top five all-around athletes qualified as well. Area gymnasts competed in the Platteville sectional on Saturday. Live stream? All events of the individual and team championships will be streamed live and can be viewed with a subscription to the NFHS network. Visit WIAA.TV for more information. Area individual qualifiers. Brooke Van Glan, a senior from the Platteville-Belmont-Lancaster triop, finished fifth in the all-around competition at a sectionals with 34.9 score. She placed third in the bars and floor and seventh in the vault and 15th in the beam. Madeline Fisher, the Prairie du Chien Fenimore Jr., took third in the all-around with a 36.075 at sectionals. She won the vault and floor and took third in beam and sixth in bars. Macy Gale, the Platteville-Belmont-Lancaster sophomore, finished third at sectionals with a 9.225 in the vault. Alyssa Shope, the Prairie du Chien Fenimore senior, took fifth in the sectional with an 8.6 in the balance beam. And area team qualifier, Reedsburg Arena won the team title with 136.375 points, while Platteville-Belmont-Lancaster took second with 134.350 for the other state qualifying bid out of the Platteville sectional. PBL seniors Mackenzie Champion and Brooke Van Glan and sophomore Macy Gale will compete in all four events in the team competition. Senior Kendra Statsney will com- compete in bars and floor, and senior Elena Statter will compete in beam and vault. The rest of the team lineup includes sophomore Haley Walkershauser, uneven bars, freshman Laney Pop, balance beam, senior Paige Oyen, floor exercise, and sophomore Maddie Klemp in the vault. Turning to women's college basketball, local trio earns first team all ARC. The American Rivers Conference selected three local players to its women's basketball first team and announced it Wednesday. Sammy Martin and Sierra Bachman of conference tournament champion Loris College 
joined the University of Dubuque's Tabria Thomas on the top honor unit. Martin, a junior forward from Platteville, Wisconsin, earned her third first-team all-conference recognition. She finished fourth in the conference with 15.1 points per game while shooting 55% from the floor. Martin pulled down 7.4 rebounds per game and had 27 steals during the conference season. Bachman, a senior guard from Shanahan, Illinois, made the first team for the first time after earning honorable mention and second-team accolades earlier in her career with the Dewhawks. She averaged 12.7 points per game while shooting 49.6% from the floor and made 40% from behind the arc for the third best mark in the conference. Bachman also hit 87.5% of her free throws to lead the league. She recorded 49 steals in her 15 games played. Thomas, a senior from Elizabeth, Illinois, and River Ridge High School, earned her third first-team all-conference honor. She led the league with 17.7 points per game while shooting 61% from the floor and 50% from behind the arc. In 14 games played, Thomas recorded 36 steals, which stands fourth best in the conference. Loris, which will host the first two rounds of the NCAA Division III tournament this weekend, landed two senior guards on the second team. They included Dubuque-Hempstead graduate Madison Fleckenstein and Daniela Gerald, a, Ver- a Vernon Hills, Illinois native. A trio of De- University of Dubuque players earned honorable mention accolades. They included sophomore Morgan Hawkins, a former Dubuque-Hempstead standout, senior guard Kathleen Mathias of Darlington, Wisconsin, and sophomore guard Isabella Tierney, an Elk Grove, Illinois native. WIAC Honors Trio of Pioneers. The University of Wisconsin-Platteville's Ella Mankiewicz, a freshman from Shawnee, Kansas, won the Wisconsin Intercollegiate Athletic Conference's Newcomer of the Year Award on Wednesday. Mankiewicz and Brindley Nelson, a sophomore from Fenimore, Wisconsin, each earned a spot on the WIAC Honorable Mention Team, while Danielle Waldera, a senior from Taylor, Wisconsin, received all sportsmanship team honors. Mankiewicz started all 26 games and led the Pioneers in several categories. She averaged a team high of 11.5 points per game and also led the team with 5.6 rebounds and was third in the WIAC with 1.8 steals per contest. Turning to the lifestyle page, the title is Carnival of Sound. Dubuque Symphony Orchestra to Tame Masterpiece as part of upcoming Classics 4 concerts by Megan Gloss. It begins with the Lion's Royal March, followed swiftly by hens and roosters, then enters the wild donkeys, tortoises, and elephant, kangaroos, aquatic creatures, and animals with long ears. Next, the cuckoo makes its presence known from the depths of the deep woods, along with additional aviaries taking flight. An unlikely addition of pianists practicing their scales interjects as fossils or nods to music of the past are hinted. A swan gracefully makes its entrance before giving way to the grand finale. When Camille Saint-Saëns composed the 14-movement Carnival of the Animals in 1886, he regarded the musical mimic of wildlife as a piece of fun and requested it not be performed in his lifetime but instead be published posthumously 
as to not damage his reputation as a serious composer. Other than an arrangement of the famed Swan Movement, which debuted in 1887 for cello and piano, Carnival of the Animals received its first public performance in 1922 following Saint-Saëns' death a few months earlier. It since has become one of the composer's most celebrated works. It's a piece that some audiences are introduced to in their youth, but even for adults there's a sense of whimsy, said Dubuque Symphony Orchestra, music director and conductor William Intrilligator. The piece will carry the Symphony's Classics 4 concerts set for 7.30 p.m. Saturday, March 4th, and 2 p.m. Sunday, March 5th, at Five Flags Theatre. It's a fitting addition to the Symphony's 2022-23 season theme, Winged and Wild, playing, paying an homage to the nat- natural world's inspiration of music. The concerts will open with George Bizet's energetic and lyrical symphony in C major, penned when the composer was just 17 years old and while studying at the Paris Conservatory under another well-known French composer, Charles Gounod. It's a great place that features the sound of the full orchestra, orchestra Intrilligator said. Like Carnival of the Animals, it was another example of a piece not debuted during the composer's lifetime. Instead, it lay undiscovered in the conservatory library from the time it was written in the 1850s until it was first performed in 1935. But Bizet died in 1875. It has been compared to early work like Mendelssohn, Intrilligator said. It's just a big and incredible piece. It's shocking that it was written by someone who is as young as Bizet and was still a student. Carnival of the Animals will see the return of Heartland Marimba Quartet, which last appeared alongside the symphony in 2021. They were extremely well-received, Intrilligator said. It was an indication that we should invite them back sooner rather than later. Symphony player Matthew Coley, who founded the quartet in 2016, arranged Saint-Saëns' masterpiece for the orchestra and for marimbas. In addition to the Carnival of the Animals, the Symphony and Heartland Marimba Quartet also will perform a world premiere piece, American composer Kevin Romanowski's Concerto for Marimba and Orchestra. It's a gorgeous piece that again will showcase Heartland Marimba Quartet and give the audience an opportunity to see this group and this instrumentation with the full orchestra, Intrilligator said. It's really a unique and exciting piece. In addition to Classics 4, a spring family concert also will take place at 1 p.m. Saturday. It will include a performance of Carnival of the Animals, as well as music from The Avengers, Encanto, and Harry Potter, among other selections for younger audiences. There also will be an instrument petting zoo, a chance for children to try their hand at a musical instrument under the guidance of symphony musicians. A photo booth, refreshments, a visit from animals from the Dubuque Regional Humane Society, and a host of other activities. It's a fun opportunity for families to come out and enjoy the symphony with a concert that's a little bit shorter and appropriate for younger ages, Intrilligator said. People can come dressed up in costume. For a lot of kids, it might be their first exposure to this kind of music and these instruments and seeing them up close. Carnival of the Animals lends itself very well to that. And that does it for today's reading of the Dubuque Telegraph Herald for Thursday, March 2nd, 2023. I'm your reader, Catherine Moyers.
You can access a recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, anytime. Thank you for listening.